Thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study, the podcast where we read the Bible as a source of inspiration and strength to help you live into God's abundant vision for your life and for the world. I am your host, Alex McNeil, and I am so excited to have with me as a collaborator today, Jess Cook, who I'm delighted to work with here at More Light Presbyterians to be a co-reader and co-collaborator with me in this text. Jess, welcome to the show. I thought we would start by introducing ourselves, a bit of who we are, and our pronouns, and our work and identities, whatever that means for you. And then we'll get going and reading into the text. Thank you very much for having me. My name is Jess Cook. My pronouns are they, them. I am a a non-binary, identified, genderqueer person. I grew up in Northeast Texas, was assigned female, and lived much of my life in trying to figure out uh, why that aspect of my identity didn't feel like it fit. I am white. I have studied fine arts in both undergraduate and graduate degrees. Um, I used to joke that I am very good at at collecting um, randomly employable degrees, then went to Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, Virginia, where I graduated in 2012. I am currently the Program and Communications Manager for More Light Presbyterians. I found my own experience in seminary to be uh, one of remarkable uh, liberation in terms of digging into the text and, and in terms of finding my own place within the text after having grown up in an area much more conservative than my own sort of ideology now. As we know, we bring our identities to the text whenever we read. So it feels important to start out by naming some of those identities that we're carrying with us forever. And sometimes those identities we're carrying with us just for today. So I'll introduce myself because this is the first episode and actually maybe have a practice of doing my identities, whatever they are showing up each episode. I am Alex Patchen McNeil. I am the executive director at More Light Presbyterians and have been in that role for almost five years now. My pronouns are he and him, and I identify as a transgender man, and I'm very public about that in my ministry, even though sometimes the visibility of me as transgender these days is less readily apparent, but it feels important to me to continue coming out about being transgender, to be a witness around journeys of transformation. I am a white, southern, now man, which is sometimes an interesting identity to carry in its trinity. I live in North Carolina, though I have a Master's of Divinity from Harvard Divinity School, so got to spend some time up north, as my people say, in Boston and then in D.C., working in nonprofit worlds and activist worlds around LGBT inclusion, both legislatively and in faith spaces. My work at More Light gets to bring all of those together in harmony as we help to transform the church and the world that we live in. Now I'd like to begin our practice of liberation Bible study, which is essentially a practice of sacred reading where we read a particular text, in our case, a scripture text, three times, one question each time we read. And we're going to begin with the first question of context. And then the second question is around how does this text call us to resistance? And the third question is, what is the vision for liberation that this text offers? 
we're going to have a conversation around the theme of transformation, which feels appropriate given that the text is around Jesus's transfiguration. You're looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. As you read this passage, what do you notice in terms of context? What's going on within the passage itself? And then what's happening perhaps before and after the passage that we just read? So when I, when I read this text, the first, first thing that came to mind was, you know, a parallel of Moses in Exodus. When Moses goes up with a crew in what, Exodus 24, I believe, and they're up for six days. And so there was a parallel you know, and kind of being up on the mountain. And so, um, you know, that he's up there with Elijah and Moses, you know, this experience of being up on a mountain, that was the thing that sort of jumped out uh, at me at first. Um, You know, the repetition of the disciples' fear and anxiety and not really knowing what to do was was also something that that sort of stepped out. You know, and the cloud overshadowing them again, kind of hearkening back to God appearing in a cloud um, in Hebrew Bible text. Those were the things that in sort of the first reading jumped out. God's command to listen to him, thinking back to Mark 1 and how God says, this is my son, the beloved. But here being told to listen to him was kind of a, a different sort of striking thing. You know, and then also in terms of what comes before and after, you know, this is right after that pivot in Mark where all of a sudden the ministry of Jesus is opened up. You know, so if you look at Mark 7, there's this intense interaction with the with the scribes and the Pharisees or where Jesus declares all foods clean and then he goes and the Syrophoenician woman you know the interaction with the Syrophoenician woman happens and then it's like the floodgates are open and so he heals you know the blind man at Bethsaida and then just before this he tells his death and resurrection so there is this pivot in terms of who Jesus is in terms of also still keeping the hush hush on on his own identity so it feels to me like a big shift in terms of where we are in the text. Shit's getting real. I don't know a better way to say that. Jesus is taking it to 11, and yet he's also Mm -hmm. telling the disciples, don't tell anybody, keep it low key. Right. No one should know. Right. Yet. Yet. Not yet. Shush. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that larger context in terms of how rooted this particular passage is in referencing things from earlier texts that a reader who is immersed in in Jewish thought and literature would recognize, particularly the interaction around Moses 
the garment, the dazzling white garment that Jesus takes on as a vision of a martyr. This passage is about almost fulfilling what has been foretold. And so it's rooted deeply in things that are untranslatable, understanding what's going on because you're rooted in, in the knowledge of your people. And yet there's something inexplicable and unknown and even unspeakable about what's happening. There's no language offered for what is actually happening in this passage. What was interesting to me in terms of context that I noticed is that Jesus takes the disciples up the mountain. In my memory of the passage, I I couldn't remember how Jesus and the disciples got to the mountain. They were just there. So reading it again today, that Jesus deliberately goes up the mountain with them struck me as, did he know he was about to be transformed? Was this an intentional act for those three disciples who kind of got it? Because Peter just in the passage before says, you're the Messiah. Peter later will not confirm that uh, and will deny it actually. And then later in, in the transfiguration passage, Peter says, well, why don't we build a monument and just stay here? So he both gets it and doesn't get it, which is who he is. The idea that, he, that Jesus takes the disciples intentionally is very interesting to me. I think the, the discussion of, of Jesus's clothes is interesting because to me, that speaks to the ways in which our outer appearance is a symbol of the internal reality. Oh, yeah. Well, can I talk about the dazzling white thing for just Please. a second? So this is unrelated. I don't know if it's unrelated, but so as a photographer, when we talk about light, the presence of, of light together, like all light put together is white light. And, and so every time I read this passage and have since, I don't know, more than 15 years since I've been reading this text as an image maker and thinking about the presence of everything there, even just as a metaphor and this idea that how often in these texts, when, um, you know, later after the, after Jesus dies and disappears, you know, the person outside the tomb is also dazzling white. And this idea, like when I think about it in looking at how do we understand that this notion of all of the things are here. This is the culmination of these things in a way that is, is really amazing. But I can't, like, in thinking about the clothing and this idea, you know, that, like, you know, he's here and he's rooted firmly in terms of there is a Moses sort of parallel that's being very clearly drawn. And then right after that, there's the Elijah parallel with the healing of the boy that mimics First Kings 17. So there is this like, oh, this is all of the things, you know, they're here and they are manifest in this person. Uh, it's like he is affirming who he is, even like going up and being intentional about taking Peter and James and John makes me think about like Abraham taking Isaac up, you know, and, and walking up to say like, you always know stuff's going to happen when you're going up a mountain. It's just super rich. But that presence of everything there uh, resonates whenever I read this text. Because I think for those of us who don't have any knowledge of, of color theory, often you think of white as the negative space. Right. As the blankness, which is untrue from a literal perspective. And in this text, it's not that Jesus is transformed and he is alone. Right. Jesus is transformed in two hugely symbolic prophets and the cloud. Everything is there in this transformation that it's not a removal of something, but rather a combination of everything. 
It's like the, it's at the end of Harry Potter, right? I'm sorry to make the Harry Potter reference. Let's always go to Harry Potter. But at the end, right, when he's ready to die and he opens the stone and then his family is around him as he's about to get into this. Do you think Jesus knew this transformation experience was transfiguration experience was about to happen? Did he know it was going to happen to him? Did Jesus cause it to happen? Or did it just so happen that they were on the mountain and transfiguration happened? What's your theory? So I think he knew. I mean, I think, you know, like throughout Mark. So Mark is the is the gospel that I feel I've spent the most time with um, and feel most feel most drawn or connected to. And there's the whole messianic secret idea that goes throughout. Mark. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. So this idea, this repeated um, theme where um, you will have people who identify Jesus as the Messiah and he's like, hush. A lot of times it is um, prior to this, you know, it's the unclean spirits or it is the people who are sick in some way, or it is, you know, in Mark 2, the, the friends with the man who's paralyzed and they carry him up to the roof and dig through the roof. They recognize who, who Jesus is, you know, but a lot of times he, you know, he kind of tells people to keep it quiet. Um, so here in showing Peter and James and John, all three of them, there is this revelation of like, yep, I am, you know, and even in, you know, when he shares with Peter, when Peter declares in Mark 8 that you're the Messiah, Jesus's response is like, yeah, like, don't say anything. Like, that's his response. And so here, it's like, you get even more affirmation. And then he's like, but don't tell anybody what's happened. And so there is this theme throughout Mark where Jesus is sort of keeping things on the quiet. And so there are some questions about, well, does Jesus know? Is he aware of what's going on? Um, I think particularly in Mark 7 with the Syrophoenician woman where he says to her, like, no, like I wasn't called to you. And she calls him out and corrects him. There's this sort of idea there of like, well, maybe he didn't know, but he did. That Um, he was the Messiah. Yeah. Well, I feel like he knew that he had a particular role, depending on Mark's Christology. I feel like there is this idea that he has a clear understanding of his particular call and his specific call that he knew was unique. What about you? Do you think he knew? I'm wondering in response to that, do I need to, do I need him to have known he was the Messiah beforehand? And how does it change things if he didn't? I think I always assumed he did know, but there are some elements of the text where he's really working through it. Mm -hmm. It's almost like he knew and he's still trying to figure out how to live into that, how to process it. And this transfiguration experience, if it's deliberate, and he took the disciples up to show them something that maybe he knew he already could do, this transformation into this mm-hmm. dazzling white, because you don't really see him doing that anywhere else. Like, mm-hmm. how did he know he could do that if this was deliberate? I think it's really powerful to consider that Jesus is working through the identity of being a Messiah. And as a transgender person, I've always resonated with this text in particular and the idea of other people rec- both recognizing something in you and naming it. And as we're trying to understand and decipher what it means, not wanting to talk about it, wanting to keep it on the hush until we're ready to actually name it more out loud. Well, so it's, yeah, so I love that. And it's interesting because for me, even in terms of like being transfigured, I think about, did he know this was going to happen to him? You know, for me, whenever I read it, I think about God or the divine as the actor upon Jesus in terms of making him dazzling white in whatever way, in that this is a thing 
that he he acknowledges. I think even the idea of then translating or looking back at that in terms of thinking about as a trans person, there is this sort of internal sense of self that feels almost as though it's been put within. And so then for us, um, we have the opportunity to step into it. And there might be times when we're thinking about it and when we don't want to talk about it, or maybe we want to talk about it with just certain people, you know, particularly in thinking about coming out and the idea of coming out and how, I don't know, even talking to you recently about, you know, ordination services for me and having a moment where I realized, oh, I need to actually make a more of a point of being intentional about coming out or being more insistent that people acknowledge my identity as trans in a way, uh, because I don't want to go through the process of ordination and have an ordination service where people are using she and her. And it was funny, but that was a point for me that was really eye-opening, where it was like, as I think about my own sense of call, you know, a part of that is in terms of living into who I am authentically. And part of that is naming stuff around gender. And so it was just interesting, because in that sense, it was like, it was, it's funny that, that ordination was the point there, where it was like, in order to live into my sense of call, I have to be honest with not only myself, which I have been, but I have to be honest outwardly. I have to assert that in a way that does cause pushback. And sometimes it's just easier just to like not, you know, because it's exhausting to have to continue to remind people who you are. I need to, to own my identity. I'm going to mull over that for a while. Because something like ordination where you take on the identity of more outwardly being a pastor in that moment, ordination service in particular, is a moment where you are transformed. Mm-hmm. and potentially even transfigured, such mm-hmm. that it's an acknowledgement of a, of a new reality that you carry with you. And it makes sense to me that something that has lived internally around your sense of self and identity in facing a different kind of transfiguration would need to be at the surface as well. Mm-hmm. That was certainly true in my own story around considering ordination within the Presbyterian Church after the policies changed. It was in that moment of policy change when the question shifted from what are you going to do since you cannot be ordained because the policies are against LGBT people to now, when are you going to get ordained? Are you going to get ordained tomorrow? The expectation was, well, make it happen. Mm -hmm. And it was in that moment of the question shifting that I realized I wasn't okay in my own body. Something that I'd been ignoring and hushing up in my own internal wisdom needed to come forth. And I believe it is something God put within me as a journey to take. What I think is interesting around the transfiguration, the radiance that Jesus has is described as kabod, which is God's essence. It's like this internal divinity. Mm-hmm. And in thinking about our own experiences with ourselves and others in the world, like those shining moments are when that divinity comes forth and you can really see it most clearly and presently. Mm -hmm. And I think it's most possible for that divinity to shine forth when you're living as your authentic self. And it's only possible, I think then, or it is most possible, but I don't know that it's only possible, but I think like in those moments when we are living as our authentic selves, I mean, it's like getting out of our own way, right? And so that is when uh, the, the divine is able to shined forth most and not to create some sort of dichotomous opposition in terms of like body and spirit in a way but being able to put down the like and to set down those things that we carry 
you know, allows us to sort of open ourselves up and to be open to, um, to who we are as God's, all of us as God's children. Maybe yeah. the transfiguration is something God needed to show Jesus as he's wrestling with how to live into this Messiah thing. God's like, don't hush. You're not going to be able to say shh for too much longer. So they're on this mountain. And I love that God uses Jesus's body. It's very material. There's a yeah. clothing that has fabric yeah. that has weight. I believe in our own transformation experiences, the embodied self is just as important as the spiritual self. For sure. The other thing that I've been noticing and really wrestling with as I've been reading this text to prepare, if you'd asked me to describe the transfiguration before I reread it, I probably would have said, Jesus is transfigured, dazzling white clothing, and then it goes away. It fades, and Jesus goes back to who he was. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's true. In this transfiguration and transformation experience, Jesus can never go back to who he was before, that he'll always know this happened to him, that he'll always carry it with him. And this declaration from God again, that this is my beloved, listen to him. I hold that as something that's true of us as well, that in these transformative experiences, we ourselves are changed at the cellular level Mm -hmm. and we can never go back to the person we were five minutes before this experience happened or five years before this experience happened. Absolutely. I think it's also interesting in terms of talking about the body and the physicality of it, uh, you know, is that this is also sandwiched by Jesus talking about his death. There is an impact that this has on our physical body. Do you feel ready to move into the second reading? I do. The question for us in the second reading is, how does this text call us to resistance? And I define resistance particularly within our own work and lives in this political moment that the gospel and biblical texts have visions for us for how we resist empire, for how we resist the status quo. And I'm curious if this text has a calling to you, Jess, as you listen. So in thinking about how the text calls us to resistance, I feel like in a lot of ways, the, the disciples here are just confused and they don't know what's going on, but they keep following. I feel like, uh, you know, as I'm thinking about, um, you know, going, you know, going to seminary and everything, there is this idea about how we understand a text. You know, we read books and, and we, maybe some of those books have some nuance to them for sure, you know, but even more um, how often like the idea of understanding a text and with one with one understanding of the text, you know, how much that is rooted in the idea of dominance and control in terms of like the empire and that there is one way to read or understand something. More often than not, at least in my experience, it's the people who, who have lived into some form of transfiguration or who have, you know, lived into some form of isolation or marginalization who understand the text far better, you know, and even within that, recognize that there is not one way to understand something. And so for me, in terms of the idea of resistance and living into that, on one hand is acknowledging that my experience is my experience, and that's going to influence the way I read the text. 
And there is no way that I would be audacious enough to assume that that is the only way to understand the experience or the text. I think that's one in terms of just not having a hook on, on what it means. You know, but I think the other for me as even in my own like embodied experience and lived person, you know, and being particularly around gender, I would say also with an awareness of my privilege in terms of class and in terms of race, um, you know, acknowledging that. But it's also like the very idea of living and owning and claiming and flourishing in who I am in my embodied existence is an act of resistance. You know, the refusal to even like name that that's the only way to understand something is a form of resistance. What do we do when we have either observed this transformation or when we've experienced it within ourselves? Because if I know for me that I have experienced some sort of transfiguration and that in order to live into who I am as God's beloved, you know, then I need to, I need to claim that and name that. And I think with that, there is also then the recognition that other people have these experiences as well to live into that um, and to proclaim that and to use my access to various platforms to dispel the idea that there is one way to understand the text and that the laws and the rules that are often, um, often written, you know, if we're talking about like by the empire, are unjust. Um, and it's my job to call that out and to, you know, and to live in from that transfigured space. Living yeah. as transfigured to me is really living as acknowledging and claiming and proclaiming the divine within the kabod. Something that I noticed in this text that feels like a call to resistance is in watching Peter's reaction to this incredibly powerful moment. It says he didn't know what to say. And yet he said something anyway, trying to make meaning, which is a very natural thing to do when we don't understand that we mm -hmm. rush to try and make meaning, especially meaning based on prior assumptions of what we've seen before. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is just like this other thing that I've read in the text about prophets. I feel a call to resistance to resist making meaning based on prior assumptions mm. as the dominant frame for doing so. Resistance is sitting with an experience of the unknown, of the holy, of the unspeakable, and not rushing to try and explain it away, to let it be a powerful thing that may be beyond words. Because I find that when something truly new and revolutionary is breaking forth, yes, there's, there's nothing new under the sun, but at the same time, it breaks these paradigms that we've already known. To mm -hmm. be visionary is to almost be beyond words. For me, resistance is to allow those experiences to take root in a deeper place than language. Well, and I also love that Peter wants to stay there. You know, I mean, that his response, even like he's like, I don't know, but like, let's stay here. You know, I think there's also that idea that like, we want to stay in those moments, but our call is out. You know, our call is to take that back down the mountain. I love that like resisting making assumptions based on what we've experienced before. Because yeah, you're right. Like there's nothing new under the sun maybe, but it's new to us, you know? I mean, and I know there are a lot of times when it's like, well, shit, like I don't, this is new. I have not been here before, you know, or seminary did not prepare me for this. And those are those moments where it's like, oh, we want to maybe stay there, but our call is to carry them out, which I think is, is really powerful. Our third question in this third reading is what vision for the work of liberation does this text offer and i want to start this question 
by asking you just, how would you define liberation for somebody who may not be as familiar with the concept? I would define liberation as freedom from that which keeps us from fully being who we are as children of God. You know, my pause there uh, was about sometimes it's easy for words to get co-opted. And I feel like liberation is a word that could be co-opted by folks who are like, well, yeah, I should be free to continue to keep my boot on your neck because that's who I am. And so I think that liberation in that context would be freedom from the belief that you have power over someone else because that's not who, that's not who we are as right. God's children. That's not who we're created to be. So sometimes that can be freedom from ideas. Sometimes it can be freedom from physical boundaries. It can be freedom within our own bodies. Liberation is one of those tricky concepts that can seem so simple and yet requires a depth and breadth of totality in its essence that we may not ever fully experience it in our lifetimes, Mm -hmm. but the goal is to be working towards it for all people. For me, I define liberation as freedom from oppression to live into the fullest sense of children created and beloved by God. And if we treated everybody like that, we would radically reorient our world and our structure so that all people could have enough to eat, Mm -hmm. enough places to live, enough, period, which is actually the definition of abundance because we already have enough. More than. More than enough. It feels important to define it before we look into the text, but I also believe the text offers for us further definitions and meanings that we can't even think of when it's just us. So Mm -hmm. we'll invite God into this conversation more. So what vision for liberation does this text offer as you heard it for the third time? So it's funny, but in reading it the third time, God coming in in the loud, booming voice and like, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. Reading it just then, it was like, oh, mic drop, goes quiet. If we are there on that mountain and we, are, we have just witnessed the transfiguration of someone, even if we have been transfigured ourselves in some way, listen to him. What does that mean? recognizing within the broader picture, both that we are knowing that we are beloved and loved as children of God, as equally as, as Jesus, as equally as Peter, James, and John. And that within that, we can exhale, knowing that we're beloved and knowing that we are beautiful in ourselves. That's really amazing. And that we get to partake in this as well. And with that, as people who are liberated or people who are free, it is our job then you know, to continue to work to address systems which oppress others, oppress ourselves, but knowing that we, we do that, you know? And so mm-hmm. how do we live into, you know, both being children of God and what it means to listen to Jesus in that? You call it an exhaling when you sit with that knowledge of being a beloved child of God, because I think we spend a lot of time trying to prove it to ourselves and to others, to prove that we are enough. And a lot of our mental energy goes into thinking, how am I going to prove that I deserve this? How am I going to prove that I'm smart enough, that I'm capable enough? And particularly in our own work, the pressure to be excellent mm-hmm. in everything that we, that we do is high. I hear a vision of liberation in that is that in that exhale, what if we didn't have to prove it? We just were. Yeah. How much freedom of our own mental constraint would that offer so that our task is to help others recognize the divinity 
and the enoughness within themselves because we're comfortable with our own. Right. And how is that? Like, I don't, that's, that's so exciting, you know, in that, like, what if we don't spend our time trying to convince ourselves that we are worthy, you know, because on one hand, we're never going to be worthy of the gift that's being offered. And on the other, we're always worthy of the gift that we're offered of even just like grace. You know, there, there have been so many times when, you know, forgiveness is offered in a way that is sincere and doesn't lose, isn't about I'm thinking about forgiveness and this idea of being forgiven and also of forgiving others and what freedom that comes, you know, it's like, what about even learning to, to forgive ourselves for being human, you know, or to re- and then realize that, oh, that's not actually, we don't need to be forgiven for that. That has so many dimensions to it. Speaking again around as trans identified people. And particularly for myself, as I was coming into my own identity as a transgender person who wanted to be read as male, how quickly the bindings of toxic and anxious masculinity just started to try and wrap their little fingers around me in trying to figure out how I wanted to show up in the world to be seen as male, which is a lot of external things like your garments, noticing those moments when I was moving away from something that felt authentic to who I was and into the performative more consciously. Everything is performative. And yet I think there are things that are more constructed to prove something about ourselves, like buying the nicest jacket we can so that we look like we have a really expensive jacket, for example. I think for me, I really work towards liberation around the nodes of toxic masculinity that operate in our culture to look towards when I'm feeling a sense of anxiety about how I'm showing up, wondering where that's coming from and really noticing where that's coming from and exploring that rather than just the reaction to it. Oh, yeah. Well, because I think LGBTQ people offer so much to the dialogue around how we, also, how we even live as people in a way that's really beautiful. Even, even notions of masculinity and femininity, you know, like how we function in gender roles, things like that. Um, I know for me, I'm not sure I've ever told you this before, but it took me a really long time to, um, to, to self-identify as trans. Like I wouldn't use that label for myself uh, because I said I had more privilege. I had too much privilege to self-identify as trans. I'm not really sure what that means, but what I know is that it was really about my own internalized transphobia and my inability to name for myself this part of my identity that's actually a really beautiful part of who I am and actually has been a really wonderful part of how I have learned to be in the world, albeit a a difficult and challenging one, but also aren't those often the most beautiful parts of who we are, you know, but, but I think even within that of the idea of even just claiming who we are and what a beautiful act of liberation that is and also of resistance and naming that it's like, it's not about needing to be, this or that, but it's about actually living into and being true with myself in terms of who I am. So I think for me, you know, I grew up in such a gendered sort of context in terms of like, this is what boys do and this is what girls do. And as somebody who didn't know it at the time, but who didn't identify as a boy or a girl, I often found myself trying to sort of um, swim and figure that out, figure out, you know, which of those opportunities I could sort of breathe in. And often it was doing the girl things and then quietly or secretly doing the quote unquote boy things, you know, but I think, I think the idea of even just claiming, even just claiming my trans identity is tremendously liberating. 
you know, naming that like, like there's no right or wrong way to be trans. I used to say that all the dang time to the youth I worked with. And it's actually been in leaving and not working with them anymore that it's been like, oh, now shit, I got to do this for myself. I, I know for me in my journey, I it took a very long time to identify as transgender because I had a story that I was telling myself that to be transgender meant I was losing my queer community mm. or that I wouldn't be welcomed in my queer community. And there are communities for, who, for which that is true. There has historically been true that transgender people were not and are not welcomed within them. So that is changing as more of us self-identify and help shift that. It took me a long time to recognize it within myself. It's, it's almost Jesus telling people to hush. Mm-hmm. Telling myself to hush. The other thing that took me a long time within identifying as transgender is I minimized how deeply I felt it. Oh, yeah. I almost said how bad it was. And to even acknowledge that it was painful in my embodiment before felt painful was something I really was reticent to say and still am because I don't want to erase who I was. And to think back to the transfiguration just one more time, I love that Jesus is there with the ancestors and the prophets and the new. I carry with me in my journey as a transgender person, the both and the identity and stories of being a girl in this world, a woman in this world, a lesbian identified person in this world, a queer identified person in this world. Like all of those histories are with me in my body as we're making something new. And for me, that's true for me. It's not necessarily true for everybody, but there is something beautiful modeled in this text about how to carry the both of history, but not just stay in, well, this is historical. And so we're going to fix it as the status quo. And that to me is perhaps the most liberating vision that we can carry both our memory and our history and yet be made new and help make the world new, that it doesn't have to be the way it was. In fact, it's all of them, you know, back to the white, the, the white light and the presence of all of those things, that they're all there and we're all sort of dazzling. Your, your comment and talking about even the way we minimize our own pain. And so I think even just naming our own, the struggle that it is to be in our own skin at times. I believe that acknowledging the struggle it is to be in our own skin sometimes helps other people acknowledge that for themselves, Yeah. whether it's about their gender or their physical pain from other, like from trauma or from health. One of the tools of white supremacy is this disembodiment from spirit and body. It's played out in Christianity for a long time, but to reconcile body and spirit together and to say, even the times I am in pain is not about me escaping my body, but about me recognizing the call my body has to me for something to change. That pain is a symbol. And sometimes I just have to sit with the pain and Mm -hmm. other times recognizing God is calling me to something. I have agency. We have agency together Mm -hmm. in transforming this pain into the source of my deepest joy. Well, that's also why it's interesting, I think, in terms of this text being sandwiched by the death and resurrection of like, we can't lose the reality of that. I, you know, it's interesting. This is a side note, but I used to have really, really, really strong reticence about toward the cross and conversations about the cross. I still have very little space for the notion of this sort of sacrificing atonement. I understand the cross more now after having, I think, particularly worked with LGBTQ youth for so long and like sat 
in that holy Saturday place between Good Friday and, and Easter when the sense of hopelessness must have been so great because we hadn't had Easter yet. Thinking about the reality of our suffering comes in, the way this impacts who we are in our bodies. As we close out, what has spoken to you from this text and the conversation we've had that you want to carry forward in your life based on our Liberation Bible study? The thing that comes to mind is the acknowledgement and the recognition of the ways in which I have been transformed or transfigured. And to claim that and to own that and to live into that as an ongoing process. So then to live into who I am and also to recognize that in others as well. Where have I seen this transfiguration? And to avoid minimizing that or glossing it over or two-dimensionalizing it, um, but to really celebrate the ways in which God transfigures all of us. What I'm going to carry with me from this reading today is that side of resistance of trying to make meaning that references and fixes paradigms I already know. Yeah. To say immediately, oh, I know what this is. Let me tell you about it from an experience I've had or something I've read. But to give myself more pause to sit with and listen, the Mm -hmm. commandment to listen to what someone's telling me or an experience I'm having and what wisdom it has for me that is doing something new that perhaps I haven't ever had language for before. Amen. Thank you for the invitation and thank you for this conversation. I'm excited about the podcast and I'm excited for future conversations. Yeah, thank you. This is awesome. Thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study. We are so glad you joined us and I hope you found strength for your journey. If this episode got you fired up, be sure to check us out online or on Facebook at More Light Presbyterian. MLP.org. Peace be with you until we meet again. Bye.